Hello and welcome to the Beat the Press podcast with me, John Sorry, and my co-host, a long-time member of the Right Back Union, it's Luke Tiverton. Hi, John. Uh, proud member of the Right Back Union, I think I should stress in response to that. <laughs> well, let, let's not open up any old wounds from last week's episodes. Um, talking of last week's episode, Luke, one of the things that we touched on was how we're dealing with with lockdown in, in different and not entirely constructive ways, it has to be said. So I, I've actually managed to kick the Spurs season repeat habit. And I think I've come up with something useful that we could be both doing instead. I, I'm all ears. Well, what better way to spend time than watching the reruns of Euro 96 over the next month? <laughs> um, I'm not sure it's any more worthy than what we were already doing. Um, but I must admit, that is a really good idea. Yeah, the sad thing is I'm genuinely excited about this. Um, I wrote an article about my my memories of Euro 96 for the Beat the Press website at the weekend. And one of the things that I talk about is something that happened after the, the England-Germany match, actually. It was the morning after. Uh, so I was 11 years old at the time. And on the playgrounds the morning after the match... We tried to reenact the England goal. So this was Shearer scoring a header in, I think, the fourth or fifth minute. And when we reenacted it, I played the role of Teddy Showing and flicking the ball on to Alan Shearer. I peeled away in celebration. And an Arsenal fan, a friend of mine at the time, turned around and said, wasn't it Tony Adams that, that flicked the ball on? Uh, at which point I could just completely gave in and I was like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> that really is insult to injury the morning after England had been knocked out of a major competition <laughs> um, I must admit reading your article uh, which is really great by the way uh, sort of made me spend some time thinking about my memories of, um, of Euro 96 and I'm sort of quite ashamed to say that what it brought out for me is that I actually don't really remember watching that many of the England games I mean I can barely remember the Switzerland game, although, although I'm pretty sure I did watch it. Um, I definitely didn't see the Scotland game, so I'm probably the only person in Britain who had to watch uh, Paul Gascoigne's goal for the first time on a highlights reel, which, to be honest, like bothers me still to this day. Um, I can vividly remember watching the game against Holland with my dad, um, and it, you know, being a Spurs fan, he was absolutely lapping up Teddy Sheringham's performance. Um, probably the greatest source of shame in all of this is that I, I didn't watch the quarterfinal against Spain, Um because a girl I quite liked at school invited me out. And I remember only getting to watch the penalties with her dad, with her looking on and looking slightly miffed in the corner. Um, And when it came to the semi-final, it didn't get much better. I remember I was running really late and rushing to get home, only to hear every garden in my street erupt when Shearer scored that early goal. Um, So I even missed the best part of that match. So basically, I'm really looking forward to all the reruns so that I can just get on board with what actually happened to England in that tournament. That's extraordinary. Lost for words. Uh, one other thing that sprang to mind about that tournament was was the reverence that all of the pundits showed Rude Hullet. So I think there's a video doing the rounds on social media at the moment, and it's got various pundits in the BBC studio. So you've got Hanson and Lineker in their, their suits and ties, and then Rude is basically just sat back lounging around in a T-shirt and a fashionable blazer. And if if he said anything in the build-up, and, and if you watch the video, I think he said, yeah, I think he played 4-4-2. It's quite predictable. The pundits are lapping it up. It's like the first person that's ever said that. <laughs> well, I guess you forget just how much of an icon Rude Hill it was back then. Um, he, he played for that absolutely amazing AC Milan team, and he'd obviously arrived in England kind of just before Euro 96. Um and before, that was really before there was an influx of foreign players into the English game. And I, even I can remember everyone just being completely amazed at what he could do and, and what he really represented. There's that great passage in um, Michael Cox's book, The Mixer, about Hullet playing sweeper in a match for Chelsea. Um, and when a high ball comes into the box, he sort of unconventionally decides to bring it down on his chest uh, and lay it to his uh, centre-back partnership, Michael Dubry, which is met with sort of gasps from the fans uh, and then Dubry just shouting what the F are you doing and booting it into Rose Ed um, you know English football really wasn't ready for the libero role back then was it and, and he was very much the libero of the pundits I suppose yeah that's that's a really good way of putting it and you couldn't get a bigger contrast to Michael Dubry than the phrase sexy football I think <laughs> uh, which 
which kind of offered up a really different outlook on the traditional English view of the game. And and it's funny, I suppose, because all of this is, is illustrative of the fact that it can take quite a while for opinions to change in football. So, so back then, you know, Hullet was seen as, as a leading light when it came to tactics. It, it took probably 15 to 20 years for a British pundit um, in the form of Mr Gary Neville um, to be viewed in a similar way. And and that's something that's, that's that became quite prominent in our discussion this week, Lee. Yeah, it segues really nicely into talking about innovation in the game and, and how football, you know, especially English football, uh, can sometimes be slow to take it up. So, so um, I mean, this is the first edition of the Beat the Press podcast where we actually tackle one of the more obvious forms of pressure in the game by um, talking about psychology and mental health. Yeah, th- this week we were really privileged to, to speak to Dr. Misha Jervis. She's a, a leading sports psychologist and, and someone who's worked in football at both, both an international and, and club level. Yeah, and what was what was really great about the conversation, John, was that there were sort of two clear elements to to sports psychology that that she conveyed in the course of talking to us. And you know, one was the more obvious debate over player welfare, where, which is really interesting in itself. And, and she's been involved in a number of studies on behalf of the PFA uh, and at a senior level in football to investigate what the game is doing in that area. Uh, but the other thing that she was really keen to stress were the the performance benefits that can that can come from a professional approach to player psychology. So it's a really insightful chat on an area which is fair to say is probably still emerging in terms of, of how it's being applied in the game. Yeah, we, we hope you learn as much from it as we did. Our guest this week is one of the preeminent voices on mental health in football. The first sports psychologist appointed by the FA to support any national team a former international gymnastics coach and renowned academic, we're delighted to welcome to Beat the Press, Dr. Misha Jervis. Thank you very much for inviting me. As John mentioned there, you've got a background in a, in a number of sports, primarily gymnastics. Um, what inspired you to pursue psychology as, a, as an area of specialism? So this is going back a while. I was an international gymnastics coach um, And that, if you like, was my sport. I was a gymnast um, and I was doing a degree in psychology and I kind of wanted to combine those two things. And so I went to the States and um, studied sports psychology um, at a time when in England uh, you couldn't actually do a postgrad qualification in sports psychology. It didn't exist yet. I am a dinosaur. It is okay. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, so that's what I did. And I was able to kind of combine my two passions um psychology and but put it into a sports context and create sports psychology from there and were there specific things about your because you're obviously involved in coaching in gymnastics as well were there specific things areas where you noticed where there was a bit of a gap maybe in in people's kind of knowledge or, or an opportunity perhaps i think you know every sport has different challenges and gymnastics is about creating really good relationships with the people that you're working with and if I look at the gymnasts so I coach gymnasts who competed for Great Britain medalists at Commonwealth Games went to world champs etc but I've been coaching some of those people for 10 years I started working with them when they were seven or eight so over a long period of time you create a very um, powerful working relationship and a very important working relationship and Some of the things that I used to do with my gymnasts came from psychology and came from sports psychology, but they wouldn't necessarily put that label on it or understand it. But I was using those techniques a lot. Misha, what are some of the challenges that you faced when dealing with gymnasts similar to to the challenges that that you saw when you you entered the world of football? Well, I think it's, it's simply about being a competitive athlete and it doesn't really matter what the context is I mean I have worked with sailors judo players tennis players athletes sprinters I mean you you name it I've worked with a whole gambit of, of different athletes from different sports and the issues are primarily the same it's about navigating through that competitive space what that looks like being able to have a sense of self throughout and they they want the same things so not really very different, although what I would say is that the culture of each sport is very different. So talking about football, how did you, uh, how did you first get involved in football? So many, many years ago, um, the FA 
needed some consultants to write the psychology component for their coach education program. And I applied and got the job to do that. And that was that was the first bit of work that I did. So I did a lot of coach education. I used to deliver workshops to many coaches. The FA used to have a, a youth coaching award that was a kind of a week-long award. It's been changed since then, but I used to deliver on that. And yeah, so that was that was the first bit of work that I did within football, really. And you progressed, as we mentioned at the outset, to to, to, to play a role in 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 working on in major tournaments, for example. What what kind of role did you play when it came to to those tournaments? So I was the sports psychologist for the senior women's team for about seven years. Um, so that involved me going to tournaments going, being at training, just being part of the the support group, really. Um, so working with players and, and working with the support team at the same time. So just, just a member of staff, if you like. And I guess being one of the first people to, to take a role like that, Misha, was it, you know, was, it, was it challenging that there wasn't a precedent for what you were doing? Well, I think, you know, the, the key was that I had been asked to be there by Hope Powell. She, she asked me to join the team. And therefore, because I had her endorsement, then that obviously made made things a lot easier. Um, But certainly it was new. And certainly, you know, there were many things that, if you like, I was creating new possibilities for, because as you rightly said, it hadn't been done before. And presumably the reaction from the players was was largely positive. Yeah, it it definitely was. Obviously, in the beginning, there was um, uncertainty, possibly, about what I was and what I was going to do. And and I think, I mean, this is a while ago now, um, the the term psychologist invokes maybe little people sort of thinking, oh, I don't need a psychologist, what's that all about? But for me, it was really, and, and this is true regardless of the context, it's about creating quality relationships. Once you create those quality relationships, then you're able to deliver quality work. And I worked you know, very hard doing that. And I think I was rewarded, if you like, by the openness of the players. But it wasn't something that happened the minute I walked through the door. It took a while. And for me to understand the culture and for me to look at it and understand where I thought things weren't working, where maybe we could do things differently, where maybe I might have a contribution to make. And Misha, was that that change in attitudes that you kind of helped to inspire? Was 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 that similar when you started working in the men's game as well? Because I, I can't remember wrong, but at the moment you're you're, you're playing a role in, in helping QPR in, in that respect. Yeah. So um, before I was at QPR, I actually was at Wickham Wanderers for many years and um, worked with an amazing an amazing man called Richard Dobson, who is now obviously the assistant manager there. Um, and actually, when I was there, Gareth was a player. Um, Gareth Ainsworth was a, was still playing, and we set up one of the most unique and different support services for psychology, whereby we had five psychologists working at Wickham, and so I I train um, people who are coming up who want to become sports psychologists, and they have to do something called um, uh, they have to do a training period. So. Um, I met Richard Dobson and he was very keen to get something happen at, happening at Wickham. At that time, he was the academy manager. And I said, OK, fine, let's do it. I met him um, through something at, at the FA. And within 10 days, we had met, interviewed people and we started a program. So we developed a program where every single age group in the academy had psychological support. So through the trainees and then through the work that I did, and this was unheard of. Um, I think it's still unheard of, actually, although it's the same system I have at QPR. It was revolutionary in as much as we were just anchored and integrated into the program. We did a lot of work with coaches. They did a lot of work with each of their age groups. So the trainees were attached to a particular age group so that they knew the kids really well, so that they were delivering it, working in tandem with the coaches we also put on um, parent workshops, which attracted, um, we were delivering stuff sometimes with 100 parents in the room. So that, again, became part of the culture of, of Wickham Wanderers, actually, 
um, and could not have been done without Richard Dobson basically championing it and saying, no, this is what we're going to do. So coaches who might have been sceptical, he was very clear about, well, actually, no, we are doing this. And, and, and that's what makes the difference. So the minute that you have the support from somebody who's managing it, it then becomes valued in a different way. And, and he then didn't allow people who might have been sceptical to rubbish it. And what was motivating Richard Dobson and Wickham as a whole to, to kind of embrace what, what you, you know something that's quite unique, like you said? Because he's a he's a very interesting man, and right. he um, <laughs> he's he's very open and he's very astute. He has excellent emotional intelligence, and he really understood how um, this was this was the bit that was missing, and this was the bit where there was scope for invention, if you like, and creativity, but also enhancement. And, and they were a club with very limited resources. I mean, we only stopped that program because the academy had to close, but it was really exceptional to work on, on that program. And, and we did many, many really good pieces of work and inspirational pieces of work and supported players in ways that were, um, were unheard of you know, in an academy setting. That attitude that, that you just touched on there, Anisha, which was prevalent at, at Wickham, uh, I mean, I think, you know, certainly in reports that you read, you know, perhaps that's not as prevalent across the, the football community as, you know, as you might like to think. Uh, and and that's, that seems to contrast quite markedly with football's approach to physical fitness, which really has evolved over the last 20 years. Why do you think there's that, that disparity I mean, that for us is a question that we ask constantly. And I don't know whether there's still fear of the ology, if you like. Um, one, of the, one of the things that's very hard, I think, for people to navigate through is issues around confidentiality and, and what that looks like and how that plays out. And whether there's a situation where managers think that they should be privy to everything um, and whether that becomes a limiter, a barrier, they don't want anybody else coming in who knows things. I don't, I don't know. I mean, because some of the work that we do is, is clearly about performance enhancement and navigating through what is a really challenging, psychologically challenging environment. Um, of course, from my perspective, it seems ridiculous that you wouldn't have that kind of support when, as you rightly said, you have an army of video analysts, you have an army of sports scientists, you have an army of physiotherapists and no psychologist in the building. You mentioned culture being really, really important. And, and obviously football is a, a sport that has quite a very developed culture in terms of how it operates. Well, that's the perception on the outside. Are there, are there other sports that sort of you know lead the way when it comes to psychology? Are there, are there sports that football should be looking to, to emulate more closely? I mean, I think that there, you know, there has been a lot of cultural shift in terms of how different sports do it. So Olympic sports, for example, will all have psychologists attached to it. Many, many years ago, I was on the, the, the British Olympic Association had a psychology advisory group, and there were eight of us on that group, and I was one of them. Um, and so they, they started actually uh, moving forwards to make sure that psychologists were part of the kind of support team and that sports could have access to it. And now if you look at how the Olympics are managed and how the EIS has, has, a, has a very strong core of, of, of sports psychologists that are working with a whole, whole range of different sports. So I think it is more common. And, and, it, and it still baffles me that today we should be talking like this it's ridiculous it's it, it's just another facet of performance so why wouldn't you work really hard to to look at that area and also just to understand that actually sometimes people just need psych they just need support I mean ignore the psychology bit um, and they need support because navigating through the world of elite competitive sport is difficult it's challenging and sometimes athletes do need to have a safe space a secure space where they can have a conversation about things you know maybe it's things that aren't actually to do with the sport but are things that are outside of it but clearly are going to be impacting on what they're doing so those kind of um to normalize that is for me the key and once it's normalized then it doesn't become an issue. 
it's just, oh, yeah, it's fine. You're just talking to so-and-so in the same way that you're just talking to a coach or you're talking to anybody else, really. Yeah, that, that need to, to normalise those kind of exchanges really came through, Misa, in, in the report that, that I think you led last year on, on behalf of the PFA. Um, would you be able to tell us a bit more about, about that report? Um, yes. So this was a piece of research that I did for the PFA. Well, it wasn't for the PFA. It was with the PFA's um, support, if you like. And they, uh, what we were trying to do is we were trying to find out what currently happens to support long-term injured players. So in the, in the literature, in the research, there's lots and lots and lots of evidence that long-term injury for athletes is psychologically very challenging. And this has been known for a long time. So given that the evidence is out there, we wanted to find out, okay, so what are clubs actually doing to support athletes? So that was the that was the premise of the paper. And the PFA were great in supporting it in terms of actually being able to help us have access to clubs and, and, and get some information back. So that's what we were trying to do. And, and we were asking some very simple questions like, how many sports psychologists do you have in the room? Or psychologists, or counsellors, or anyone who might look like. And not many is the answer. I think that when you when you compare the percentages to other other types of staff, you know, the figures are very, very different. And most people had a huge swathe of physiotherapists, doctors, part-time physiotherapists. And not many had a psychologist. For those, for those that had a sports psychologist, generally they were academies where in the EPPP, which is the kind of um, the governance, if you like, of academies, there is a requirement for certainly category one clubs, which are the highest ones in category two clubs, to have evidence of a sports psychology or sports psychology program. It doesn't actually specify what that is particularly. So most of the, the part-time sports psychologists were in academies, not with first teams. That's quite perverse, isn't it, that, that I guess kids can break through an academy having been used to having some psychological support just because it was stipulated by a standard and then they kind of break into the first team and then all of that's just taken away. That just seems completely counterproductive. I would agree. I, I, mean, <laughs> I, would, I would absolutely agree. And, and the other thing and, is that we didn't know from this paper what exactly the sports psychologists were doing. So they could have been part-time, but was part-time one day a week, was part-time one day a month. So there, there were a few limitations with the research, which we need to follow up on and, and find out in a little bit more detail. But those, those figures were not surprising to me. I, I actually thought that I would get, we would get something like this. But it just it, it reaffirmed, if you like, my belief and, and it gave us tangible evidence that that was the case. Yeah, I think it was really interesting. Uh, I, John and I were really struck by sort of the disparity between the the professionals that you spoke to and, and the club. So you sort of had 99% of the professionals you spoke to were sort of reporting experience of some sort of psychological disruption, but then most of them saying that they, they'd received very little psychological support from their clubs. I think John and I were in the same boat where we were kind of expecting that it maybe wasn't something that was completely top of the list of priorities for clubs, but we kind of thought in 2019 that the game might have moved on a bit from, say, 20 years ago or, or 10 years ago even. And so it, it's, it's quite interesting to see that it's, it is still kind of you know, not doing as much as we probably expect. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, fear of re-injury, which is a kind of anxiety, was one of the most commonly reported symptoms, if you like, of, of long-term injury. Now, how that plays out in reality is that people might experience muscle guarding, i.e. they might change their movement to protect a part of their body that's injured or they might change what they're doing they might not go in for certain moves if they think that they're more likely to get injured so it changes the way that people play and so if you think about the club protecting the assets of those players you would not want someone to be going back out playing with fear of re-injury because undoubtedly it is going to impact on their performance so just that small bit alone seems to me to be something that should be paid attention to. And because the unpacking of it is a, is a psychological issue, even though it's a very common one. And that fear of re-injury is something that is experienced broadly and, and widely at the end of a long rehabilitation period. 
Other things such as depression tends to show up in a long-term injury through that slow rehabilitation phase, you know, where you might be out for months and months and you're not really doing anything very much and you're just kind of maybe coming in and doing bits of rehab work and it's very slow. That, again, is a, is a point of psychological vulnerability, which needs, which needs addressing. And, and for me, you know, the analogy I always use is currently the system seems to be, well, we'll wait until people have fallen off the edge of the cliff and then we'll go, oh, go and see a counsellor. Well, I think that's not the best way to do it. So if you have support from the beginning, you never get to the edge of the cliff which seems to be better for the players, better for the club, actually, as well. And that's, in a sense, what, what we're advocating. Just going back to the point you made, me sure about protecting poor players, trying to protect themselves from, from re-injury. I think that's probably something that, that everyone can relate to. I think there are sure. examples that, uh, that kind of spring to mind. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about kind of David Beckham as far back as kind of the 2002 World Cup and, you know, his performance potentially being affected by the injury that he had prior to, to that tournament. Are there, are there first-hand examples that, that you've seen of that during your work? Well, I mean, I, th- I think there are lots and lots of examples whereby people haven't had any psychological support and you can see how um, their game changes, how their performance changes. So, um, you know, and, and then they're kind of vilified for that. Players are put back onto the pitch because they're physically fit. Great. But are they psychologically fit? Maybe, maybe not. And you can imagine that in that environment, which is a cauldron of judgment, and then you're fearful that you're going to do something that might injure you again, you know, that thought that just comes into your mind that you can't quite let go of, that you kind of hang on to, it's a distractor. And in those moments, you're going to do something differently. So I think that if you look back over players who have come back and and think about that transition, um, Daniel Sturridge comes to mind in terms of how he was actually treated when he was coming back from injury and, and what happened with him. There was a complete lack of understanding of that kind of psychological transition which again is, you know, different from what um, Danny Rose was talking about, whereby he was talking in a sense about that long rehabilitation phase where actually depression showed up for him. So, you know, it plays out in different ways for different athletes. But certainly all of the evidence shows, um, and and we did have done another study, it's not published yet, um, whereby we got data from 250 athletes from a whole range of different sports just to try and find out how common these things were. The figures are through the roof. We ask questions about suicidal ideation. How many of you have experienced that whilst you were injured? And you might think, oh, it's going to be a very small number. Well, it, it wasn't. It, you know, it was um, over 40%. So this is, not, this is not insignificant. Now, it doesn't mean to say anyone acted upon it. It might be, you know, it might be just one time, one thought. But what I'm saying is that we have so much evidence that really... I think that there's a duty of care to look after athletes and players, obviously um, being part of that group, in a way that we can do better because we have the information and we also have the expertise who can do that job. But it has to be normalised and it has to be part of what, what, what happens. And that takes the stigma away. So, for example, at QPR, all long-term injured players have psychological support. through. It's just a holistic program. And I've called it the return program. And the, the return program comes uh, comes from, it's an acronym whereby the R stands for physical rehabilitation. The E is for emotional and psychological rehabilitation. The T is teamwork. So it's a collaborative approach with the physios, with the S&C coaches, with the coaches um, and the psychologist. The U is it's unique to each individual player and the R, I think I'm doing R now. Yes, the R is about that they have to be both physically and psychologically ready to return and the N stands for it's normalised. So it's just that's just what you do. If you're in the club, that's that's what happens. And so all of these kind of notions of, oh, I've got a problem, there's something wrong with me, is just taken out of the equation. And it makes it much much simpler and much easier because it's just go, yeah, this is just how you do it. End of story. 
And I suppose adopting protocols like the one you just described, that's how you normalize things, isn't it? Because you just say, right, this is the step-by-step methodology that you that you as players and clubs take, and everybody just kind of accepts that that's the pathway. Um, Misha, it's really interesting what you were just saying there around, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the academic work that you're doing at the moment is focused on kind of gathering the evidence. Is it, is it fair to say that that's a, you know, a big part of what you're having to do at the moment is to say, right, here's the compelling argument for why this you know, why psychology and psychological support needs to be further up the agenda because it, it's, it's interesting you're saying a lot of this kind of seems like it's fairly obvious but actually you do you do need evidence don't you yeah i mean our studies i mean we did two studies we did one study where we looked at the medical support we did another study where we interviewed pfa counselors actually so the pfa counselors were people who metaphorically are dealing with people once they've fallen off the edge of the cliff um, and we were trying to ask them whether injury was part of the reason that people were suffering with with depression or anxiety or gambling addictions or whatever and they very clearly made the link between injury and those issues. So we, we are, I mean, you're right, we are trying to gather evidence. In a football context, we're trying to gather evidence. Having said that, in the kind of psychology literature, in the sports psychology literature, there is a wealth of evidence that tells us long-term injury is psychologically difficult. And it's just that it's not being acted upon, maybe, or it's not being used. And and maybe that's because simply the psychologists are not in the room. We're not in the room to be able to put those kind of support protocols in place. And so it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg, really. Misha, you talked about the, the study that you conducted with, with the counsellors that are contracted via, via the PFA. And I think one of the findings that you mentioned or you, you kind of alluded to there was around the link between addictive behaviour and the the isolation that stems from from long-term injury. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So, you know, you can imagine months and months and months of, okay, you might just be going into a club for maybe an hour to do a bit of rehab and then you're going home again. So it's a a bit of a lethal cocktail of boredom, loss of self-esteem, fear of will I ever be able to play again, I remember once just watching a player and he was standing literally with his nose pressed to the window watching training happening with just the saddest look on his face. It was just, you could just feel every fibre of his body just being sad and wanting to be out there with everybody else. And, you know, the closer you are in terms of, you know, your journey towards the first team, then the more significant this gets because is this career-threatening you know, if you're an under 18, well, maybe I won't get to have an, another contract. Maybe this is me. Maybe. So all of those kind of thoughts can show up and can damage your your sense of self and your sense of identity. And it's easy then to get isolated and to get lost. I mean, we had situations where people were talking about the fact that they couldn't watch football on telly. They couldn't talk about it. Um, just too difficult for them to do that. So that speaks to quite a lot of psychological disruption and, and psychological vulnerability, really. And even apart from the from the injury aspect, Misha, are, are footballers generally a, a group of people that are, you know, are, are more at risk of, of mental health issues because of some of the factors around their lifestyle and, and the kind of industry that they work in? I think um, they are as vulnerable, I would say. But I think... The problem is, is that there's a there's a kind of culture within football which papers over the cracks. So if we're talking about a kind of hegemonic masculinity whereby you don't say what you're feeling because it's a sign of weakness and you don't share those vulnerabilities and you man up and get on with it and all of those kind of stereotypes, um, it becomes a lot harder to actually say, you know what? I'm actually struggling here. Actually, um, I, I don't feel good or um, for, for whatever reason. So I think that we have done, if you like, a disservice to our athletes in as much as we put them on a pedestal and we think that they're somehow these, you know, gods who are in, who difficult things don't happen to, which, of course, is not true. They're human. And the other thing is that they're doing their job in front of thousands of people who will rip them to shreds and feel entitled to do so. 
how would you feel it if you had those people looking over your shoulder saying, no, that was a really useless question or don't do that. Or you're it's very difficult, very difficult. And we have this notion that, well, somehow the money just means that you should just be able to shut up and put up and get on with it. But that's not really understanding that these are people and their lives are complicated and lives are difficult and they should be entitled to talk about these things. So again, one of the things that I'm doing at um, QPR for the academy is actually doing some mental literacy training for all of the full-time members of staff so that we start talking about things in a very different way. And that actually coaches or other support staff, you know, whether that's sports scientists or physios or whoever, you know, what is the difference between anxiety and depression? Oh, well, I don't really know. Well, is that the same? Is that different? What would I notice? So that if you start allowing people to have a bit more understanding of these things and we deliver it in a context where it's anchored in football, so it's very clear. And, and of course, there have been situations with people within clubs that have experienced these things. And so we speak of how, how we've navigated through these things, whether it's anxiety or depression or eating disorders. These things inevitably will show up because they show up in the general population and they're no different. It does seem that football struggles to learn a little bit from some of these things because, you know, I, I'm not that old, quite old, but not that old. But in, in my lifetime of, of following football, I can think of a number of really, really kind of like high profile stories um, linked to players' mental health, which, you know, exist as quite significant warnings. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about going through the 90s, there's quite high profile addiction stories involving people like Tony Adams, Paul sure. Merson. I mean, Paul. Paul Gascoigne yep. is you know, a fairly Absolutely. prominent example. Um, I was, I'm also thinking that, you know, you mentioned uh, suicidal thoughts being being prevalent. And fortunately, in most cases, they don't get acted upon. But there are examples of, you know, you know Robert Enker, Gary Speed, where, where things have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Why doesn't football kind of take those quite significant moments and, and kind of do something? Uh, I know that that's probably an impossible question. I think this is a this is a this is a slow peeling of the onion, if you like. And with every story and every brave player who comes and tells their story, it makes it easier for the next person to tell their story. We have moved on. And so, you know, Tony Adams set up Sporting Chance because there was absolutely nothing. And so Sporting Chance now exists and athletes go and receive appropriate care. The PFA, when it started, had no counsellors at all. That kind of welfare arm of the PFA didn't exist. There are, you know, it now does exist. Do you know what I mean? So whilst it might look as if there's nothing happening, there are important shifts and important moves. And each player that is brave enough to speak about it. I mean, Dave Cottrell talks a lot about his struggle with alcohol and he's very open about it. Um, all of these players help us understand that actually, again, you know, let's stop people falling off the edge of the cliff. If there was someone immediately available for them to talk to, then maybe it wouldn't have spiralled in the way that it, it actually has spiralled. So, so actually what you're saying is it's very easy to despair about what isn't in place but actually we, we we should look backwards and say actually there has been progress and we should celebrate that progress because that's going to enable more to happen in the future I, I think so um obviously i i still want more to happen um i i am not satisfied with how it is now i i think that there are some easy gains that could be in place but but i do think we have to we do have to do that we do have to recognize that that we are moving forward you know, 10 years ago, mental health would not have been talked about in a football club at all. And now, you know, people are, are using those words and, and having a semblance of understanding about what it actually means. Misha, is this something that you're particularly attuned to at the moment, given the fact that everyone is mm -hmm. more isolated than they have been? What what kind of, kind of preparations are, are you kind of taking in, in kind of like coronavirus? Yes, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, how um, there are certain narratives that are around now that have not been around before, which for us as thought scientists, we're going, finally. So, for example, <laughs> the link between exercise and mental health. I mean, we have known about this for a very, very long time. 
although obviously for these athletes it's it's almost like the reverse because they're not able to do as much as they normally would part of what we've been doing is or part of what i've been doing is is creating some sort of little videos um, informative videos to try and just keep people focused on on certain things check in with players just see how people are doing and you know i've been i'm working with a couple of athletes who were getting ready for tokyo so that's interesting we've had to do a lot of work around okay how can we turn this into an opportunity so i have a kind of mantra which is stay optimistic and get creative and i've been trying to use that a lot with people in terms of okay well where are the opportunities because there are inevitably opportunities we have to find them and we have to make this time meaningful and purposeful even though it is very different it, it might look very different but it doesn't have to be wasted time. Does that mean that, that clubs are having to do a lot to kind of reach out to their players when, when they're not necessarily at training um, and maybe you know, think about their, their psychological welfare and their mental welfare as, as much as everything else at, at the current time? I'd like to think that that's the case, yeah. I mean, I'm sure different clubs are going to be doing it in different ways, but fundamentally it is that checking in, seeing how people are, are navigating through things, flagging up, um, I mean, what, one of the things that we do um, is that we we have, um, it's called a Brahms questionnaire and it assesses for mood. So um, every week the, the players fill this in. They, they fill this in normally during their, their normal training. So we actually have access to their psychological data. So if, for example, there's a lot of mood disturbance, that's a trigger then for me to get in touch with them. So we're sort of just monitoring this. And in the beginning, there was quite a lot of mood disruption this has settled down a little bit now, but I'd like to think that that is what people are doing. And, and certainly, you know, listen, there are many clubs who have psychologists and, and I'm sure that this is what the psychologists will be doing, working with the coaches as well. It's, it's really interesting. I, mean, I was just thinking about the, the change in lifestyle for you know, a normal person who, for example, might not be able to go into the office and, and has to deal with that. But um, I suppose for someone that's used to potentially playing in front of 20,000, 30,000 people each week to go from that to a point where you, you're cut off from, from even training your teammates must be kind of mind-blowing, uh, you know, at first. Well, I think, you know, we all have to navigate through this difficulty in a way that provides opportunities for ourselves. We're all having to create our new normals. And I think the people who struggle with it the most are the people who are going, oh, I really hate this. I really don't want this to be like this. And they're, they're fighting with it all the time. And actually, the way is to go, okay, I need to accept this situation. I need to realize that I, I can't control what the virus does. I can't control what decisions Boris is going to make in, you know, an hour and a half, which is going to impact on my life. I can't control a, a number of factors, but what I do get to control is my immediate bit of life. I get to control how I treat the people that I'm living with. I get to control how I use my day, how I use my time, what opportunities I find. And, and I think that those kind of approaches, if you like, to this, they're universal. You know, they're, they're as powerful for me as they are for you, as they are for a footballer or an athlete. One of the barriers that's that's referenced in, in I think, the report, but certainly, certainly literature in a kind of more widespread sense, is is, is the macho atmosphere that that surrounds kind of clubs and, and training grounds. Do you think that the break that we've got at the moment represents a bit of an opportunity for kind of players to to be a bit more open potentially, given the fact that they're not in that atmosphere, not exposed to it day in, day out. Yeah, and maybe, you know, many players are actually spending valuable time with their kids, which maybe they wouldn't have had the opportunity to do before, and actually spending time with the family because, you know, footballers' lives are very um transitory. They're away a lot, they're playing away a lot. So actually to spend time with your family Certainly, to be a parent for, for many players, that is an opportunity to really appreciate and understand what that looks like and connect with that side of you. So, yeah, I'd agree. I think that there are opportunities here to actually grow from this experience and, and maybe in ways that are unexpected. 
And Misha, what, what do you think? Um, what's the future outlook for psychology and football? So, you know, obviously you're working and striving to make sure that there's more to come. What, what, what are the immediate things that, that, that you expect to happen? I'd like to think that there would be more leadership in a sense from um, management about making sure that long-term injured players worked with the psychologist as part and that that becomes normalised and and nobody questions that or challenges that, partly because so many people are going to be experiencing that. It's so common. Injury is so common. So to, to change that approach to injury would have a profound benefit for everybody benefit for the players but also benefit for the clubs because I think then the players would be able to come back in better shape and maybe their performance levels would be at a, at a higher place but I think you know we have to also find the, the the voice of the players has to be heard here in terms of what do they want what what would be of use to them how how would they like to be supported and I think that maybe we don't hear from from them but obviously that's that should be the role of the PFA to, to speak the voices of the players. And I think you're right, you know, at the beginning when you said that um, we've got this really weird kind of dichotomy whereby players have experienced psychology, psychological workshops, psychological support if needed in an academy and then they go to the first team and there isn't anything. So we'd like to kind of think that maybe the players would start to demand it um, and actually go, well, what do you mean there's no one for me to talk to, you know? last year I could I could just go and speak to the academy psychologist how come I can't now so the players help to shift that culture because when psychology is done correctly and when it is simply just embedded in the fabric of the club then it's just it's it's so routine as to become nothing that you need to be fearful of there's no stigma attached but it's just that you have different conversations and those conversations are useful at different times. It's really interesting. I think one of the things I, I, that I, I read that was attributed to you is saying that there actually might be a role even for sort of player representatives and agents to be a force for, force for good here and sort of uh, introduce these kind of things as something that players expect. <laughs> What's the likelihood of that? Well, I mean, you know, in theory, the agents are supposed to look after the welfare of their players I, you know, I I don't know what their understanding is of mental health issues or, you know, if an agent thought that their player needed some kind of sports psychologist, I don't know that they'd know how to go about finding somebody. So I think that sports psychology itself also has a job to do in terms of um, to keep on promoting the people and the skills that these trained people and I use that word advisedly because there are people who are calling themselves mental coaches or performance, goodness knows what, and they're not qualified. And I think sometimes the coaches or, or, or the club doesn't know the difference between the two. You know, a motivational speaker is not a trained psychologist. So there, there is work still for the sports psychology community to, to kind of keep those conversations alive and to to help educate the people who might be employing us about what we can do, what we can offer, what our services are. Misha, do, do you think we might be reaching a bit of a, an inflection point? Because, you know, I think if you go back, say, 10 years, um, you know, statistics in football were not really widely used. Nowadays, you said there's an, there are an, there an army of statisticians at various clubs, but that, that took a while and it is still a process, you know, beyond top flight clubs. I think that's, you know, that's only being embedded in isolation. Are we kind of at that point on, you know, in this journey towards kind of um, ensuring that psychological support is more widely available? We know. So performance, performance is an expression of what's happening in in terms of um, how you're navigating through that situation. So when you come to the elite bit, the difference is psychological. The difference is, yeah, I trust myself. Yes, I can do this rather than, oh, maybe I'm not sure. So the, the gains are always psychological because physically, pretty much every single team is training the same way. There aren't some teams who are physically fit and some who aren't. They're the same. That's kind of been nailed. So the, the, the differences are who can who can navigate through the psychological challenges of that extremely demanding environment 
And the truth is, is that you can learn some skills to help you go through it. And if you learn those skills early enough and you implement them, then it's going to help your performance. So I understand how people think that football or any sport is a physical thing. It, it really isn't. Something interesting that John and I thought of uh, while, while we were discussing this topic, um, John mentioned about kind of data analytics and English football did lag behind some of uh, some of its kind of continental counterparts in terms of embracing the, the gains that could be that could be sought from data analytics. Are there other other nations uh, on the continent, maybe or elsewhere in the world, which which are a bit further ahead than English football in terms of psychology or or, or is football in general kind of? in a similar place i mean certainly there are there are clubs who had you know um, bill bauer for example has had a long history of having a sports psychologist firmly embedded as part in the club so i think that there are there are clubs that have embraced this and, and where it is where it is just normalized and i think that there will still be some clubs in in england where that is also true you know, and there will be certainly some managers who will be very comfortable working with a sports psychologist. But it's not universal in the same way that if you said to them, oh, are you thinking about having a video analyst then? I mean, no, 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 we've got seven. But it's like, oh, sports, well, sports psychologists, well, maybe do we, you know, we're not perceived to be kind of essential to the team, even though what we do makes difference. Misha, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, and, and I guess for making what's quite a complex subject um, feel so accessible. Um, it's reassuring to know that there's people as knowledgeable as yourself striving to move mental health nearer the top of football's uh, agenda and, and to be a genuine force for change. Uh, good luck with that. Um, I think it's fair to say there's been giant strides in terms of awareness over the last few years. So so we really hope there's more to come in terms of uh, the structures and procedures that, that will follow. Um, yeah, thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. So that was Dr. Misa Jervis telling us a little bit about how football has evolved over the last 20 years in terms of psychology and where it could go in the future. And John, we, we were treated to a really insightful conversation, um, you know, with somebody who's genuinely at the top of their game and, and just, you know, evidently so knowledgeable about the topic that she was here to speak about. Um, and it was an eye-opening conversation as much as anything else. I mean, you and I had said before we had a chance to speak to Misha how shocked and surprised we were at some of the findings from the study that she'd undertaken on behalf of the PFA, especially in terms of how little seemed to be sort of formally in place in terms of you know mental health and psychology in top-level football. And I suppose it links to what you said at the beginning of the podcast about football, you know, sometimes being a bit slow to embrace innovation. Yeah, absolutely. When you think about you know how advanced some of the thinking is in in some areas of football at the moment, and um, you know, I suppose how kind of outwardly enlightened some of the leading coaches are. So you know, you take Klopp and, and Guardiola as, as as two examples. They come across as not just not just very intelligent, but but also really aware of of different aspects of the game. So you know, the emotional and psychological side. And you know, it's surprising that, that psychology doesn't appear to be an integral part of the setup at, at every elite club. Yeah, I completely agree. I suppose we should we should stress that we don't necessarily know what every club is doing behind the scenes. Um, and, and even Misha herself admitted that despite some of the feedback to her survey, um, she wasn't aware of how involved psychologists were. So even the clubs that did have a psychology function, it could have been at the forefront of what they were trying to do, or the psychologist could have just been in there doing sort of half an hour a week. So there probably is a little bit more to peel back. Um, and I think we probably should stress as well that she was really keen to point out that it's, you know, it's very easy to rail against the system um, and say that it's an uphill battle and clubs aren't embracing the need for, for more psychological support. But actually there has been a hell of a lot that has happened in the last 20 years. Um, we picked up some of the addiction issues Issues that came out, you know, over the course of the '90s, and there've been other high-profile alarm bells recently, you know, with players like Aaron Lennon, Stephen Corker, and, and Clark Carlisle. So it does feel like awareness is as high as it's ever been in football, um, and the game does seem to know more about this stuff now. Uh, it's just what it's doing with that knowledge, I think, is, is still to come. Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a really good point, and it, you know, it does seem to be a discipline that has. You know, quite a lot of subtleties in terms of, of how it can be applied. We were really interested in the example that Misha gave of uh, Athletic Bilbao as a, as a leading club in this area. And yeah, they're probably one of the clubs with a very established approach to psychology. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and and we did a bit of digging into what's going on there. Um, I mean, they're an interesting club full stop, really. Um, you know, if listeners weren't aware, they have a policy of only fielding players in the first team that have been um, born or raised in the surrounding Basque region. Um, and they're pretty much the only top level club in Europe to have a self-imposed selection restriction of this kind. Um, so what that means in reality is that they've got access to a population pool of about 2.5 million which is the equivalent of say united or city only being able to select players from the greater manchester area um so that really gives you some idea of sort of the level of restriction that they're putting on themselves not, not to mention they're also competing with other top flight clubs in the Basque region in the form of um real sociedad and ibar who are, who are also both in the liga um so they really had to search for a way to keep themselves competitive in this sort of modern era of football um and, and their approach is all centered around sort of creating this formidable academy. Um, it's produced players like Lisa Rizzo, Ander Herrera, Fernando Llorente, uh, Xavi Martinez at, at Bayern, um, and also sort of you know, more household names like Kepper and Imeric Laporte who are playing in the Premier League at the moment. Yeah, and psychology is, is, is a really big part of what they do in the academy. So um, yeah, a, lot of the, a lot of the work with their, their quite established psychologists uh, is, is concentrated on educating coaches um, you can then basically work with the players almost as mini sports psychologists to develop their awareness of identity and things like their emotional and behavioural development over the course of their time in the academy. And I, th- I think it's it's seen as a really kind of true learning environment where everybody from the coaches down to the players are invited to be you know, as reflective as, as possible. And the, the biggest focus is on is on constant improvement. That you know, really comes through as opposed to kind of winning necessarily. Yeah, and all of, all of that's really interesting, isn't it? When you when you think about you know one of the first things Misha said in the interview was how integral the coach athlete relationship was in in terms of psychology, uh, and it does seem that sort of creating that open environment, you know, like the one they have at Athletic, um, is integral to kind of optimizing that. Yeah, and it's it's really bearing fruit. So according to a Guardian article, eighty five percent of first team players came through the academy, and the average stay in the academy before reaching the first team is, is seven years, during which they're they're going through the psychological process that that we talked about. Um, yeah, and the, the teams, you know, it's also had success on the pitch in in recent years. You know, they've reached a Europa Europa League final. Um, they're one of only three clubs that have never been relegated from the top flight in Spain, and uh, and and on that front, along with you guessed it, Real Madrid and Barcelona. Yeah, and I, and I was reading something recently about sort of their most recent star product uh, from that academy, John, who's, who's a player called Inaki Williams. You know, not not necessarily somebody that everybody's heard of, but he's a really exciting player. Sort of, you know, blistering pace. He's, you know, if you watch some of his uh, highlights on YouTube, they're they're incredible. Um, he was being linked with a whole host of kind of major European clubs recently, and and of course the big two in Spain. But he actually uh, instead opted to sign a nine year deal at, at Bilbao. Um, and his comments at the time of signing that contract were really really. Really revealing um, in terms of the value that he personally placed on on the on the processes at the club. Um, he said, "From the bottom up, we are doing everything right, and that is something that other clubs can't buy." Um, so it's really interesting to see how you know the players uh, at Athletic Bilbao really buy into the whole ethos, um, which includes that focus on what I think I've seen them term the inner game, which is which is quite an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, it's a really really interesting approach, particularly with what's going on at the moment I mean clearly whatever happens over the next few months clubs across the football pyramid are going to be facing quite significant financial limitations and you know with that in mind they are you you think going to have to be a bit more innovative in, in how they approach player development Definitely. Um, and I suppose the example of a club like Athletic Bilbao is a good one as, as they found a way to work around sort of, you know, a significant self-imposed restriction uh, to, to really good effect. Um, and, that, and that really supports Misha's view, doesn't it, that there's a performance benefit to, to investing in psychology. Um, I thought there was another interesting echo of something that, that Misha said that, that I came across in the course of just reading up on, on Athletic a bit. Um, and that was the need for the psychological aspect of the game to be normalised within the culture of a club and an academy. Um, There's a great interview in the FT of all places with the sporting director at Athletic, who was unsurprisingly a former player. And and he said, do we do something different from other teams? No. Technically or strategically, we don't invent anything magic. 
and, and I, that, that just made me think that, you know, the psychological focus that they have is just part of what they do. And even though everyone around them recognizes them as sort of leaders in that area, you know, they just don't see it like that at all, um, which is essentially where Misha was saying clubs need to get to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've uh, we've actually done a, a surprising level of research for for that one, Luke. So I'm really hoping we haven't set any kind of expectation on ourselves for uh, for future podcasts. So to round off this week's show, we're revisiting our trawl through some of the finest analogies that football has to offer, and um, and this week we're going to be examining the ramblings of Carlos Carvajal, uh, the former Swansea City coach, and there's some real gold on offer. So, Luke, I'm just going to. I'm going to jump into the first one. Um, let, let, let me know what you think about this. So he was talking about Swansea's modest budget going into a January transfer window when he said, quote, we have money for sardines and I'm thinking lobster. I will do my best to try and bring in the best players. I will look to the lobsters and the sea bass. But if not, we must buy sardines. But sometimes the sardines can win games. It's it's a fantastic analogy, John. I I, I really like it. Um, I'm I'm actually really glad you picked somebody like Carlos Carvajal. I, I must admit he'd sort of completely slipped off my radar. And yeah, I remember lots of journalists talking about how enjoyable his press conferences were when he was in charge of you know Sheffield Wednesday in the Championship and and obviously Swansea briefly in the Premier League. Um, and that, I suppose that particular example reveals why he was uh, so much fun. Um, not not sure how I'd feel as a Swansea player being compared to a sardine, though. I mean, you know, that's not the most motivating message yeah although i don't know if it's just my palate but i actually don't consider sardines to be that bad i mean it's not like he's comparing them to fish fingers <laughs> processed fish is an altogether lower standard of player <laughs> one of the things i think we found with these analogies actually is that it's often during the transfer window that that managers seem to reach for these quite strange and obscure references um and, and I, I i my feeling on this is that they almost seem to serve as euphemisms for for when the club hasn't got much money um but but you know when the manager doesn't want to be too explicit about that uh, in public um you remember the jose Mourinho one from from episode one which was mainly centered on him not wanting to say overtly that that spurs couldn't afford the best players yeah the, the next quote continues that theme as well um, and, and for my money, it's, it's even better, actually. So Carver Howell continues with the fishing analogy, um, but he's, he's talking here about how Swansea are being left to, to wait to sign Andre A, I, th- I think is at the end of the same window. So he, so he says, The boat is on the sea, the bait is on the hook, but there is nothing so far. I am not on the boat, I am on the beach watching. There are players I want, they have to be the players a manager wants. Yeah, again, it's that playful way of saying I'm not really in control of this, isn't it? Like, if anything's going wrong with the signing of these players, it's not really my fault. You know, because I'm just on the beach chilling out while somebody else is sort of out there fighting the elements. To be honest with you, I quite like the position he's in. If I was sat on the beach with my feet up, with someone else to blame for a transfer window that had gone wrong, I wouldn't be complaining. <laughs> I mean, it is really easy to kind of stretch that comparison to Jose Mourinho, you know, because they're both Portuguese coaches. But the tone is so reminiscent of Jose, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, like, I want good players, but no one will give me good players. I want to sign these players, but no one seems able to sign these players. It's very much being used as a way of sort of relieving themselves of responsibility. Um, I do think Carverhouse are more poetic, though. There's definitely sort of a, a Hemingway-style theme running through his analogies. He stays with the culinary comparison in, in the last analogy that, that we're going to cover, although, um, although he does change food, so we're moving away from from fish, at least. So he's, he's talking about the attacking substitutions that he made in an attempt to win a game against Burnley, uh, which they eventually did go on to win. And he says, We put all the meat on the barbecue... We put all the meat on the fire to try and win. Now, I I don't know how most people cook their barbecues, but whenever I've gone to a barbecue and just chucked all the meat on, things have gone very wrong very quickly. (laughs) You know what? I I actually think I remember this one quite clearly. Um, And and that's essentially what he did do in the match, I think. He just threw structure out of the window, uh, which, which, as you point out, is completely the wrong way to manage a barbecue. Um, I seem to recall that they, you know, they 
desperately needed the points in that match and he just started throwing on attackers and I think they were playing four up front at one point um, but I do remember that post-match interview um, and he was absolutely cock-a-hoot with the win and he just launched into that whole kind of barbecue comparison and I remember even the match of the day interviewer was stifling laughter in the background in the course of trying to ask more questions you know it was it was absolutely fantastic yeah I'm trying to imagine what the barbecue looked like in my mind actually you know, you've got sausages next to chicken drumsticks, they're next to prawns. It's just a it's just a medley of meat. Oh, for me, chicken drumsticks should always be done in the oven, John. Come on. Although I do, I do wonder which of those items were Fernando Luente, which were Wayne Routledge. You know, it's, it's a real shame he doesn't go into into more detail. Um, he does come across as a great manager to play for, though, doesn't he? He's always seemed sort of a really good character and sort of a, a genuinely funny guy. I mean, certainly barbecues can be considered sort of much more fun than, than, say, gardening. So, you know, take note, George Graham. So that's it for this week. We'll be back with another interview in the near future, and hopefully it'll be as interesting as this one turned out to be. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please leave a review and subscribe on your usual podcast platforms. To get in touch with us, visit beatthepress.net or follow at B underscore press on Twitter. (laughs) 